Today we continue in our sermon series, Win the Day, based off of the book by Mark Batterson. And we have been enjoying this series and all that we've been learning, and some of you have been sending me pictures of the book that you've ordered for yourself uh, so that you can go even deeper because this has been so enlightening so, so for so many of us as we've gone on this journey together. And so we continue today with the sermon, Cut the Rope. Somebody say, Cut the Rope. In 1853, America hosted its first World Fair in New York City. The organizers built an exhibition hall called the Crystal Palace, and it showcased the latest and the greatest inventions. There was a man named Elisha Otis. He stole the show by pulling off a stunt for the ages. Otis, as you may know, was the inventor of the elevator safety brake. But he had a hard time selling his idea to safety first skeptics. So here's what he did. Otis stood on a platform high above the Crystal Palace he had an axe man positioned above the elevator shaft. Then he yelled loud enough for everyone in the exhibition hall to hear, cut the rope. The crowd held its collective breath as the elevator dropped. The elevator fell a few feet. And then Otis announced, all is safe, ladies and gentlemen, all is safe. The safety brake worked, as did his sales pitch. When Elisha cut the rope, there were only a few buildings in the New York City that were taller than five floors. But then in 1980, I'm sorry, in 1854, Otis installed an elevator in a building on Broadway, and the rest is history. By 1908, there were 538 buildings in New York City that qualified as skyscrapers. Fast forward a few hundred years, according to the Otis Elevator Company, the equivalent of the world's population rides in Otis Elevator every three days. So it's safe to say that Elisha Otis turned the world upside down. How? By cutting the rope. Please hear me what I'm about to say. Are you hearing a feedback? Yeah, I am hearing one too. Maybe it's something on the board. Yep. Please hear what I'm about to say. Playing it safe is risky. The greatest risk though is taking no risks. One, it maintains the status quo, and two, it leads to something called inaction regrets. At the end of our lives, according to psychologist Tom Gilovich, 84% of our regrets will be the things we would have, could have, and should have done, but did not do. It's not the mistakes we made as painful as that is. It's the opportunities we miss. Yes, you will experience a few falls a few fails, but cutting the rope 
is the way we cut the ribbon on our dreams. So if you have a Bible, meet me in Mark's Gospel in the book of Mark, chapter 4, verse 35. In his work, in his book, Deep Work, Georgetown professor Cal Newport talks about a concept that he calls the grand gesture. And it takes a few different forms. It can be a romantic gesture, like getting down on one knee and proposing marriage. It can be a physical gesture, like taking a picture when you're starting a diet or a new regimen. It can be a creative gesture, like the one-way missionaries a century ago would pack their belongings in a coffin instead of suitcases because they knew they would never return. Simply put, a grand gesture is a defining decision, a calculated risk, a selfless sacrifice that doubles as a defining moment in your life. I'll make it personal. When God called me to full-time ministry, I had a defining moment like this, a grand gesture, where if you're familiar as attorneys, you get this paperwork and you fill it out at the end of the year and you know that you have to send it back in order to keep your license renewed. You have to have so many continuing legal education credits. There's things you have to keep doing. You don't just get the license and it lasts forever. Many of you have professions where you have something like that as well, realtors, teachers, uh, people who have credentials in substance abuse counseling, all of these types of careers where they want to make sure you're still on top of your craft, you're doing the things that are necessary, and that you're still qualified to do what it is that they certified you to do. My grand gesture was intentionally allowing it to lapse, making a decision that if I'm going to move forward in full-time ministry, that I'm going to close the door behind me that will allow me to keep going backwards to what is familiar, what I know best, what I know I can fall back on. I had to make a grand gesture to close that door. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the doors of the Castle Church. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus. On May 25th, 1961, John F. Kennedy said he would land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth by the end of the decade. Any way you slice it, the genesis of the Protestant Reformation, the civil rights movement, the space race, the end of my law practice were grand gestures. When it comes to goal setting, problem solving, and habit breaking, as we have been unfolding and discovering in these last five weeks, grand gestures are one small step, but one giant leap. They are the point of no return. Now, I'm citing moments of historical significance and personal significance, but even if they aren't newsworthy, Grand gestures are no less noteworthy when it comes to your own personal lives. Many of you may be thinking of grand gestures that you have made, and maybe grand gestures that are yet to be made that will signify the beginning of the new journey that you know that God is taking you in. 
I want to talk to you about the art and the science of grand gestures. And I'll cite some studies and some stories, but this idea is as old as altars. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is full of grand gestures. Noah builds a really big boat. Go big or go home. Abraham puts Isaac on the altar. The Israelites circle Jericho for seven days. Benaiah chases a lion into a pit on a snowy day and kills it. Esther does a three-day fast. Elisha burns his plowing equipment. Ezekiel lays on his left side for 390 days. James and John drop their nets. Peter gets out of the boat. Zacchaeus climbs a sycamore tree. The Ephesians build a bonfire and burn their scrolls. That's the tip of the iceberg. But those are tipping points. Those are the days when decades happen. Those are the inciting incidents that turn into defining moments. Each one of them, in their own unique way, cut their rope. For some, it was a huge moment. For others, the pain of staying the same was greater than the pain of change. One way or another, there comes a moment when you need to cut the rope. Are you at Mark already? I want us to look at verse uh, 35 in chapter 4. Turn your head. We're in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And it reads, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. Let me set the scene. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. And they set out as the sun is setting. Now that's not insignificant, why? Because being on the open sea at night is much scarier than being out there in broad daylight. Verse 36 says, leaving the crowd behind. Now that's a little sermon within a sermon. Leaving the crowd behind. Sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes you need to separate yourself from the crowd. How do you do that? I'm glad you asked. Almost all of us are suffering from information overload. We are bombarded with news and fake news every minute of every hour of every day. We've got online advertisers vying for our attention with clickbait. We've got social media algorithms targeting us based on our likes and our follows and our search history. We've got social media in every regard trying to influence our, our thoughts and our decisions. So for us, pulling away from the crowds may not be as simple as it was 100 years ago or even more. We've got to really pull away from the noise from the voices, from all of the opinions, from all of the thoughts that are weighing in on what we're trying to hear from God about what we should be doing. 
I'm certainly not suggesting that we should just bury our head in the sand, but we need to be praying about what's next. We need to pray about the news, which is very different from just watching the news. Carl Barth said it best, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. If we get this backwards, we're in trouble. When we filter the Bible through the news, our theology conforms to our reality, which is a form of idolatry. So how do you leave the crowd behind? For starters, the average person spends 142 minutes a day on social media. 142 minutes per day. That represents 15% of our waking hours. Is this how you want to spend 15% of your life? When was the last time you just took a day off? When was the last time you just left your phone behind? Just turned down the white noise a decibel. That's one way you can turn up the voice of the Holy Spirit. We got to make sure that that still, small voice is still the loudest voice in our lives. Amen? Amen? The scripture continues, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, but soon a furious squall came up and the wave broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Let me add here a little topography to the chronology. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, but it's surrounded by hills and mountains. The Golan Heights, which were called the Decapolis in Jesus' day, 2,500 feet above sea level. So that geography makes the Sea of Galilee susceptible to very sudden, very violent storms. The Bible continues, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Now, all of us may find this a little interesting because, first of all, Jesus is taking a nap. Now, unless you are, in my culture, I used to have to force my children to take naps. They thought that if they took a nap for a brief moment, they were going to miss something miraculous that was going to happen. I'm sure you didn't go through this at all with your children. But after we hit a certain point, many of us find it very difficult to get naps again. Our careers just simply don't seem to allow for taking a nap in the middle of the day. But interestingly enough, a NASA study found that a 26-minute nap increases productivity 34%. If you take a short nap, they say you get two windows of creativity, two windows of productivity. Long story short, Jesus napped. And if we want to be like Jesus, maybe we should consider taking a couple naps here and there as well. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, I find this fascinating. Jesus is, sli is sleeping, so obviously he doesn't care. 
We're awfully quick to assign blame. We're awfully quick to attribute wrong motives. Am I right? In stressful situations, our natural tendency is to play the blame game. If you had been there, how could you let this happen to me? That's what the disciples do. In case you haven't noticed, if you change news channels, everyone else is playing the blame game as well. We've got to stay humble and stay hungry. We've got to stay calm and carry on. We have got to stay the course and stay in our lane. But I have a couple questions as we look at verse 39. How much of what you're saying is a regurgitation of the news channel that you watch or the social media accounts that you follow? How much of what we're saying is a recitation of the revelation that we're getting from God's word? Look at verse 39. Then Jesus got up and grabbed an oar. No, that's not what happened. Then Jesus got up and started bailing the water out of the boat. Daniel shook his head. No, that's not what happened. What did Jesus do? Look at the scripture with me. Then Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, peace, be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm. Now we suffer from what we like to call hindsight bias. We know every story. We know how it ends. So sometimes we have um, what I call a loss of the element of surprise. We lose the shock and the awe. But let us look at this with fresh eyes this morning. Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves because he has the authority to do so. How does he do it? With three words, peace, be still. I sense in my spirit, in light of everything that is happening in culture, that it is a moment for the people of God to exercise their spiritual authority as well. In a spirit of humility, we have to stand up and rebuke the wind and the waves. It's not so much of us doing something, getting involved, getting angry, getting upset, but standing in the authority that Christ Jesus has given us and commanding the wind and the waves to stop. This is a moment for us to stand in the gap as peacemakers, as grace givers, as tone setters. This is a moment for us to defeat the enemy. How? Well, you better put on the full armor of God first. But listen, our weapons are not carnal. Our weapons have the divine power to demolish strongholds. Did you catch that? Our weapons have divine power. We don't fight fire with fire. We shift the atmosphere 
by operating in the opposite spirit. How many of you have had a problem on your job and you tried to go to HR and you tried to go to the person who upset you, but when you found out that what you really needed to do was grab your anointing oil and go in there before everybody else and just anoint your office and anoint your cubicle and anoint the doors so that as you came in that the atmosphere would be changed. We rebuke hate with love. We rebuke pride with humility. We rebuke cursing with blessing. We rebuke lies with truth. We rebuke injustice with righteousness. We rebuke racism with repentance and reconciliation. We rebuke cancel culture with grace. We have the authority to move mountains. We have authority over evil spirits. And I know for some of you that might sound spooky, but we are wrestling against powers and principalities, not against people. We have authority over death and disease, and we underestimate our authority in Christ because we fail to understand our identity in Christ. Did you catch that? We underestimate our authority in Christ because we fail to understand our identity in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 18, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It has to do with us being in the will of God and for the glory of God, but when it is, that's a game changer. So let me talk to you about two types of grand gestures. And then I'm going to talk to you about two ways to cut the rope. And then we're going to close. The first kind of grand gesture for our note takers is what I would call a field of dreams gesture. A field of dreams gesture. If you build it, they will come. It's Noah building the ark. It's Abraham making the move from Haran to Shechem, even though he didn't know where he was going. Many of you are going to find yourself in that same situation, that continual journey of faith, moving and not even knowing where you're going to be going. It's the little boy who gives his brown bag lunch, five loaves and two fish, to Jesus. That's a grand gesture. I can go on and on, and even as I'm speaking to you now, I'm thinking about instances in my own life, and I pray that as you are really receiving what the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to you this morning, that you're thinking of a few instances in your life as well. But the other kind of grand gesture is what I would call the enough is enough gesture. The enough is enough gesture. You hit a point of no return. It's now or never. It's David's decision to fight Goliath. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow to the 90-foot statue of a godless king named Nebuchadnezzar. It's Jesus cursing the barren fig tree. How many of you 
are at a place where you're ready to declare the enough is enough gestures. You've looked at the problem long enough, you've examined it long enough, and you're ready to cut the rope because you're not sure exactly where it's going, how God's gonna do it, but you know that something different has to emerge. Either way, there are two keys to cutting the rope. The first one is you have to kneel down. And the second one is you have to stand up. You have to kneel down and you have to stand up. I'm not sure how else to say this, but we all need revival. And what I mean by that is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. We need to humble ourselves and pray and seek God first and turn from our wicked ways. Revival always starts with repentance. See, some of us, we look for revival on the outside. We look for revival as a place or as an event or as a conference at a church where they have a lot of speakers lined up. Revival begins in us. It's repenting of our personal sin. It's lamenting our corporate sin. And it starts with the people of God. Rodney Gypsy Smith was born on the outskirts of London in 1860. He never received a formal education, yet he lectured at Harvard. Despite his humble origins, he was invited by two sitting United States presidents of the White House. Gypsy crisscrossed the Atlantic Ocean 45 times, preaching the gospel to millions of people. And he never preached without someone surrendering their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Gypsy was powerfully used by God. Everywhere he went, it seemed like revival was right on his heels. But it wasn't his preaching that brought revival. Preaching may move the hearts of men, but praying moves the heart of God. Did you catch that? I said, preaching may move the hearts of men, but praying moves the heart of God. That's where revival comes from. Gypsy revealed his secret to a delegation of revivalists who sought an audience with him. They wanted to know how they could make a difference with their lives the way he had with his. And his answer was simple yet profound. As timely and timeless now as it was 100 years ago. This is the advice he gave them. Go home. Lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. Wow. Wow. Prayer is the difference between us fighting for God and God fighting for us. 
The second point, and my last point, is you have to stand up. On January 30, 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking at First Baptist Church when he was interrupted and told that his house had been bombed. That night, he was sitting at his kitchen table when he heard a voice that said, Martin, do not be afraid. Now, inspired by that experience, Dr. King took a stand. He said, quote, you may be 38 years old as I happen to be, and one day, some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause, and you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job, or you are afraid that you will be criticized, or you're afraid that you will lose your popularity, or you're afraid that somebody will stab you, or shoot at you, or bomb your house, so you refuse to take the stand. Well, you may go on and live until you are 90, but you're just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. And the succession of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. It left us with this realization. We have to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. We have to begin to live out our purpose, even though, yes, it is going to involve some inconveniences. I remember when I made that fateful grand gesture not to submit that paperwork and to allow my license to lapse. That was a turning point in my life, and I would be lying to you if I said it was all roses from that day forward. Quite the contrary. I found myself in many of pit, going through many of trial and tribulation. But the one thing that I knew for sure was I couldn't turn back. I had to keep going forward. I had to keep pressing ahead to see what the end was going to be. And I'm so grateful for that, or else I may have never discovered what it was that God wanted to do in my life. Many of you are facing those type of decisions right now as well, where there is a turning point, there is a tipping point, there is a transaction, there is a transition, there is a shift that you feel coming in your life. And although you feel it and although you know it's time to make the change, there's something inside of you that is saying, but what if this doesn't work out? Maybe I should just continue on the path that I'm on because even though I, it's not really the path that I wanted to be on, at least I know what the path is. We tend to have a certain level of comfort in the known and a little bit of a fear of the unknown. A little bit of a fear of what will happen if I go down a different path. But I'm praying this morning as we have been 
going through this process of evaluating our habits and evaluating our decision making and discovering new ways that we can approach them so that we can go closer to God and become everything he's called us to be, that the cut the rope becomes significance to you. Because in order for us to know, in order for us to experience it, in order for us to see what it is that God wants us to do, we're gonna just have to go ahead and cut the rope. We're going to have to go ahead and walk by faith and not by sight. We're going to have to go ahead and leave the crowd and leave the things that are familiar and leave the things that we've come accustomed to leaning upon and learn how to lean on God. Now, this may be a road that is unfamiliar, and like mine, it may be one that's filled with bumps along the path. But the beauty of it all, as we talked this morning and we gave all the historical differences and all the historical and biblical examples, is that God was able to get the glory when they cut the rope. See, we keep talking about this, that it's bigger than us. When they cut that rope on that elevator shaft, it was bigger than just them. When you cut that rope, it's bigger than just you and your family. As we have been saying over and over again, and I'm praying it gets into your spirit this morning, there are things that God is doing through us that will impact our community, if not the world. And I know it's hard for us to believe at times because, again, we don't see our identity in Christ. We see ourselves the way other people see us. We don't see the great purpose and the plans that God has placed on the inside of us. And sometimes we do see them and then we get afraid. Sometimes we see them and then we think, no, nah, that couldn't be. That couldn't be possible for me. Yes, it is possible. But all we have to do is believe. We have to begin to believe, and that's why I love how we fill ourselves each Sunday morning and we remind ourselves in the Word of God and we are encouraged by His Spirit because sometimes we know that we're called for greatness. We know that God has put this in our belly and that He's birthing something out of us. And we just have to have that spoken to us again, speaking life into our dreams, speaking life into those things that have died that they would come and the revival would begin in us, that we would be revived in our belief, that we would be revived in our dreams and the visions that God has given us that we have allowed to die because they didn't happen right away. Somebody say, it is not too late. It is not too late. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Kneel down, stand up, then do it all over again. Cut the rope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in this season. I thank you for the dreams that you've placed in our hearts. I thank you for the visions that you've given us, visions about our ministry, about our businesses, our careers, our families, our health. I thank you for the things that you've shown us that we've been a little timid 
and afraid to pursue, not sure how to pursue it. God, I thank you right now for this commission you're giving us in spite of all those worries, in spite of all those concerns, in spite of all of those unknowns, to go ahead and cut the rope, to go ahead and move forward by faith, just moving one step at a time, just winning each day. God, help us to focus on that. Help us to seek you daily that you would be found. Help us to have a revival in our own personal life that we can do the things that you've called us to do. Father, help us to not be so focused around the things that are not going right around us, the people who are not doing right around us. God, help us to place our focus on our individual growth. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you. And as we focus on you and as we seek you, I pray right now that you will begin to pour out your spirit on us like never before. Give us divine ideas. Give us witty inventions, Father God. Give us supernatural concepts. Begin to share with us and reveal to us in moments what it would have taken decades without you. God, begin to shift our mentality, begin to shift our mind, that we would have the mind of Christ, that we would be bold and fearless, and that we would move according to your will and according to your way, that you can do mighty works through us, oh God. That we would be bold in our workplace, and that we would be bold in our marriages, and that we would be bold in our ministry. Father God, that you would be able to do things through us that the world has never seen before. Father, thank you for reviving our dreams. We will not give up on you. As long as we have breath in our bodies, as long as we wake up every morning, it is another opportunity for us to see your goodness, for us to see your mercy, for us to see your promises come to pass in our life. In our lifetime, God, I declare promises coming to pass. In our lifetime, I declare it by faith us witnessing mighty moves by your hand. Give us the faith, Father God, that we would declare and commission and command our life to align with your will. Hmm. We're counting it done. We're thanking you in advance because we walk by faith and not by sight. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Somebody say amen.